of Christ See the mercy in his eyes Every valley shall be lifted high Now our enemies are blessed And the happy laid in rest For his judgment is love His judgment is love well, I'm very excited to be starting this new series, Mountain of Salt, City, in Light, City of Light, uh, a study in the Sermon on the Mount. Excited is one word, uh, daunted or intimidated or other words that come to mind. I'll explain why in a minute. The Sermon on the Mount is the longest continuous discourse of Jesus Christ found in the entire New Testament. And many people would say that this is the greatest moral document that we have in our possession. The Hindu leader Mahatma Gandhi, uh, he says, if I was faced with just the Sermon on the Mount and this was Christianity in its entirety, I would say that I am a Christian. Our old friend, the very outspoken atheist Richard Dawkins says, Jesus was surely one of the great ethical innovators of history. The Sermon on the Mount is way ahead of its time. There's several layers of irony there. But this document enjoys an elevated status among people from all walks of life. It doesn't matter if you're a, a Hindu or you're an atheist or an agnostic. I remember reading this as an agnostic. I didn't go to church. I had no particular devotion to Jesus Christ. But I remember reading this for the first time. And it made my hair stand on end. It gave me goosebumps because I knew there was something radical, there, there was something revolutionary about Jesus' words here. It's no wonder then that this is the most commented portion, commented on portion of Scripture. In, in the entire Old and New Testament, in the entire Bible, there is no other passage that has mu as much commentary on it as the Sermon on the Mount. So the secondary literature is immense. But then again, so is the tertiary literature. Uh, in other words, there are commentaries on the Sermon on the Mount, and then there are commentaries on the commentaries on the Sermon on the Mount. So you can read about how St. Augustine read it, and how Anselm read it, and how Luther read it. Uh, and so this is why I say I feel intimidated by this. How could I possibly do justice to all of that? Obviously, I, I can't. That's impossible. So this is, if you like, sacred ground. Regardless of where you're coming from today, this is elevated, if not sacred ground for all of us, whether you're an atheist, an agnostic, a Hindu, or even a Christian. And so, in the context of this widespread recognition of the elevated nature of these texts, and, and in the context of this sort of overabundance of commentary surrounding these texts, I want to make this suggestion. Please, please read this for yourself. Um, you will find the, the Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew's Gospel in, in chapters 5, 6, and 7. Uh, and, and I want to suggest that you read those three chapters every week for the next nine weeks or so for the duration of this series. Or, or if you prefer, you can put the brakes on and, uh, and, and we can read slowly. Reading slowly is good. I like to do that. So if you want to read more slowly, just take one of those three chapters, 5, 6, or 7, and uh, one of those chapters a week, and by the time we get to the end of this series, we will have cycled through the entire sermon at least three times. And so I think there can be something really powerful about all of us meditating on the same passage at the same time together. 
uh, making this the sort of central text for our community over the next couple of months. So, so that's the first thing. Let's, let's read this. Read this for yourself and let's read this together. Now, as we read this, I want to suggest uh, a way of reading this. I want to offer us a lens through which we can read uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to suggest that we read this through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of the good news about Jesus Christ. Uh, I think that's actually a way that we can read the entire Bible. That's, a, that's not a bad way of reading the Bible through the lens of the gospel. But especially here, I think Matthew, that that's what Matthew's encouraging us to do. The way he sets it up, the way he frames the Sermon on the Mount, I, th I think he's d doing a couple of things. He's simultaneously telling us, look, here he's making a gospel announcement. And at the same time, he's saying, now read this through the lens of this gospel announcement. Now, we may not notice that's what he's doing, of course, because the way that he announces the gospel and the way that we have been trained to announce the gospel in the church, uh, contemporary church in America, the, the, the way that what he means by the gospel and what we may mean by the gospel, they don't always overlap or, or coincide. What people usually mean by the gospel is something like, Jesus died so I can go to heaven or Jesus died so I can be forgiven, or Jesus died so I can have a personal relationship with God, or Jesus died to give me eternal security, or Jesus died to save me, or Jesus uh, paid the price I couldn't pay so that I could be reconciled to God, or Jesus died so that I could have the right psychological motivation for doing good works, no longer out of guilt but out of gratitude. Some variation on the theme. Uh, and and not only, many people believe that this is the beating heart and centre of the gospel, that this is the fullest summation of the gospel, so much so that if you don't mention one of the, just say one of these sentences that we have up here, if you don't say one of these sentences, then uh, you will, you have failed to preach the gospel. Um, this, this is why uh, sometimes when I've been invited to give the message at different churches, uh, sometimes uh, at the end of my message the, the pastor will get up or, or some other member of the church will get up behind me and, and start preaching the gospel because I hadn't done it. I hadn't said one of these sentences uh, uh, that, that I just mentioned. Um, now that may seem a little bit uh, uh, pedantic, neurotic perhaps, legalistic, but it's what I call enforcing the doctrine of grace enforcing the doctrine of grace. This idea that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, it is by grace, the unearned, unmerited, undeserved favour of God. Um, enforcing the doctrine of, of grace. Well, of course it is. Of, of course it is. But the, the, here's the irony. The irony is that by enforcing the doctrine of grace this way, by making this the beating heart and soul of the gospel, by making this the fullest summation of the gospel, we are not necessarily creating an environment where people get to experience God's grace for themselves and live under God's grace together and be gracious to each other. I'm, I'm going to say that again. By enforcing the doctrine of grace this way, by... by emphasizing the gospel in this manner by making this the fullest summation of the gospel, the beating heart and soul of the gospel, we are not necessarily creating an environment where people get to experience God's grace for themselves and live under God's grace together and be gracious to each other. And I say this because 
anecdotally speaking, after countless, countless conversations and now countless articles and books and podcasts, that they're all saying the same thing. Apparently, the church in America is in crisis. It's bleeding out members. It's countless people are leaving the church. And without wanting to um, be oversimplistic, uh, I think an important feature in this story is this. Despite reinforcing the doctrine of grace and saying these sentences and emphasizing the gospel in this particular way, there's very little grace to be had. And people are treading on eggshells around each other and they're just tired of trying to get it right. Now, I'd want to explore the reasons why that might be in more detail on another occasion, but for now, I just want to offer this suggestion. Might it be because this version of the gospel is so intensely focused on me it's all about providing me with assurance, providing me with salvation, providing me with the right psychological motivations, providing me with a personal relationship, providing me with eternal security. This is intensely focused on me as an individual so that we can't experience God's grace for ourselves or learn how to treat each other graciously. Have you ever read a book which you just fell in love with, you thought, wow, this, this author really knows how to write well. I, I, I love this book. It's become my favorite novel. And, and then they come out with a movie adaptation. And so you go to see the movie uh, and then you, you, you come out and you blink your eyes as, as the, you adjust to the light outside the theater. And, and what do you say? What do you say? You say, well, it wasn't as good as the book. You always said, it's never the other way around, is it? It's, it's always, it's not, it's, the movie's okay, but it's not as good as the book. Uh, even when a supreme effort has been made to be faithful to the original source, um, I don't know if you know this story, but when Peter Jackson was making The Lord of the Rings, the movie studios wanted him to make only one movie out of the three books. Three books squeezed into one movie. And in the face of this cultural vandalism, he had to place his artistic integrity ahead of everything else, put the entire project in jeopardy, as he insisted on making, no, no, three books get three movies. Three movies for three books or I'm not doing this. And of course he won out in the end. But despite that, that sort of artistic integrity and, and that desire to be faithful to the source, uh, now look, some of you may not agree with me. I, I mean, I, I happen to think that uh, those movies were actually really good, uh, but you, you may not agree with, with me on that. Uh, you don't have to. Uh, you can be wrong if you want, but uh, even, even then, most will tell you it, it's, it's just not as good as the books. Well, essentially, what is being referred to as the gospel is like that cultural vandalism that shrinks your all-time favorite book into a not-so-good-sometimes-terrible movie adaptation. It's not that there's no resemblance there. Of course there's some resemblance. It's just not the whole story. The characters are thin and undeveloped. There are too many missing details, and the plot is now simplistic and diminished. And so what happens is we come to the Sermon on the Mount, the longest continuous discourse of Jesus in the entire New Testament. We come to the Sermon on the Mount with this abbreviated, truncated, diminished gospel. And we're told you must choose between one of two possibilities. Either 
the Sermon on the Mount as a set of rules that you must follow in order to save yourself and earn your salvation, or, or Jesus is obviously setting impossibly high standards that no one could possibly be expected to follow. In fact, Jesus doesn't expect you to follow them. Um, really, it's the show that you can't follow them and that you are going to need a saviour, that you cannot save yourself. So, so it's either a list of rules you have to follow to save yourself, or it's illustrative material, essentially, to show you why you cannot save yourself. And that's the kind of reading that comes from an abbreviated, truncated version of the Gospel. You, you get a diminished reading of the Sermon on the Mount and a diminished version of Jesus Christ himself. Well, I don't want to choose between those two. Uh, so let's, let's turn off the movie adaptation for the moment and let's pick up a copy of the unabridged version. And in the unabridged version, it says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Now we can read Jesus' ascension up a mountainside as a very practical step. Um, when speaking to a large crowd. Do you, do you remember that story where the crowds are sort of pushing in on Jesus from every side and, and it's hard to speak to them? And so what the disciples do, they push out, they, he gets in a boat and they push the boat out a little way into the lake. And then the, the crowd sort of form a natural amphitheater on, on the shoreline. And, and so Jesus speaks to them there and everyone can hear him and they can see him. Well, well, perhaps this was also getting on some elevated ground was the ideal thing to do when you've got a crowd like that come to listen to you. This was the ideal, very practical step to take to be able to be heard by the crowd. And so now that we've, we've understood that, we can get past verses 1 and 2 and get into the real meat of this sermon. Only we can't do that because whatever practical reasons that Jesus may or may not have had um, for going up the ele elevated mountainside, um, the fact is this is led with symbolic meaning as well. It's led with symbolic meaning. In fact... The mountain is not just uh, the incidental backdrop for Jesus' message, uh, but Jesus has chosen the mountain on purpose, quite deliberately, to become an intrinsic part of the message itself. And so the first thing we need to note is that mountains are a potent theological symbol throughout, throughout the whole Bible, the Old and New Testament. Well, they're, they're a potent theological symbol. And it's really interesting where they appear. They always appear in what are otherwise catastrophic, cataclysmic moments where the entire future of Israel or, or the entire future of humanity hangs by a thread. It hangs, by, uh, it hangs in the balance. The, the, the way ahead is closed. Tomorrow's not going to come. The curtain's about to fall. But then, then there is a mountain. There is always a mountain, and unexpectedly, God steps in, and the future of humanity is reopened. Think of Mount Ararat, where Noah's Ark lands, and the crisis in the heart of God is resolved. He will continue with the human project after all, and so the deadly floodwaters begin to recede, and Noah sees the rainbow and he smells the damp earth beneath him as he sets foot once more on solid ground. And he understands this is what God's grace is like. 
or Mount Moriah, where Abraham climbs up to sacrifice his son Isaac, which is really a sacrifice of himself. All of his personal hopes and dreams are embodied in his son. But it's on Mount Moriah where God provides the ram in the thicket, a substitute sacrifice. And in that moment, Abraham is not only handed back his son, but his own future and Israel's future along with it. And he understands this is what God's grace is like. Or Mount Carmel, where Elijah believes he's the last prophet of God and prepares to take his final stand against the burgeoning cult of the god Baal and his 450 prophets who had Israel entranced. But on Mount Carmel, God intervenes and the spell is broken and suddenly a new possibility appears before the nation and Elijah understands this is what God's grace is like. Of course, the most obvious and important mountain was Mount Sinai, representing a people who had been rescued from slavery, from Egypt, from Pharaoh's hand. Moses climbs the mountain, and at the summit, he encounters the living God. Every time humanity or Israel are facing a collective existential crisis, a, a crisis of their existence, there is a mountain which becomes a threshold of God's new and unexpected future. And so it says, Jesus went up on the mountainside. Do we know which mountainside? Does Matthew tell us? No, he doesn't, so no, we don't. But yes, we do. We know which mountain is it. It is Ararat. It is Moriah. It is Carmel. It is Sinai. It is the mountain of God's gracious intervention on our behalf. Jesus chooses this potent symbol to frame his sermon because he wants us to understand him and he wants us to understand the, the words that he is about to speak. He wants us to understand the sermon itself as the event of God's gracious intervention on behalf of humanity. Noah couldn't make the flood waters recede. Abraham couldn't secure his son's future. Elijah couldn't break the spell. Moses couldn't rescue his people from slavery. Any future that humanity has ever had has always been the unmerited, unearned, gracious gift from God. And to imagine the future could come to us any other way is absurd. Which, uh, which is what I was going to, I've got a piece in brackets here, uh, which I was going to cut out, but I'll, I'll tell you the piece in brackets. The bit I was going to cut out, I was just going to go back to what Richard Dawkins uh, said earlier, that, that Jesus was way ahead of his time, that the Sermon on the Mount was way ahead of its time. Um, and uh, it's a little ir ironic, because of course he thinks that we would have inevitably got here by some magical evolutionary process, which just would naturally headed off in this direction anyway. Um, but I think he's got things back to front. No, this, this is the result of God's intervention. When Jesus gets up to speak, we are on the threshold of God's new and unexpected future, which is always his gracious gift. Well, that's just the first two verses. 
uh, which I have often been tempted to skip over, but, but we can't. And I, I want to dwell here a little longer, uh, just, just a little longer, okay? I just want to dwell here a little longer and, and pursue the significance of this a little further, the way that Matthew pursues the significance of this. So what I want to do is I want to jump now to the end of the sermon, uh, to see how Matthew closes this account um, in the final two verses of the Sermon on the Mount. So, so you do, it's a little bit like we did with Colossians, if you remember. We sort of looked at how Paul opened his letter and how he closed his letter. And, and sometimes by looking at how an author frames their writing, brackets their writing, we can better understand everything we're reading in between those brackets. So again, I think the same principle works here. So I want to look at how uh, Matthew closes the bracket. So let's jump to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the last two verses, uh, verse 28 and 29. It says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So we have this mountain at the beginning of the sermon and we have this claim to authority, this proclamation of Jesus' authority at the end of the sermon. And those two things go together. Those are mutually reinforcing ideas. Mountain and authority, authority and mountain. Uh, but in case we missed it, uh, Matthew brings these ideas together uh, right at the end of his Gospel. So let's jump now to the end of Matthew's Gospels, Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, uh, verse 16 says, then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. It's very real, isn't it? Some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So we have the mountain at the beginning of the sermon, the declaration of Jesus' authority at the end of the sermon, and at the end of the gospel, Matthew brings these two things together, mountain and authority, authority and mountain. And on the mountain, Jesus declares that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And that, that is how Matthew goes about announcing the good news, announcing the gospel. And, and there's no use sitting around waiting for him to close. He, he should finish strong. He should finish by announcing the gospel. He should use one of those. When's he going to use one of those sentences you know, that, that we mentioned earlier? When, when's he going to say that? But this is the good news. He's announcing the good news. It's just not focused on me. Well, but, but how can it be good news if, if it's not about, well, I'm not involved. Well, well, I know this may be counterintuitive, but it's good news because I'm not involved. Well, I'm not, I'm not centre stage. How about, let's put it that way. I'm not centre stage. And that's why it's good news. It, it may seem counterintuitive, but the good news framed the way Matthew frames it, I think will actually allow us to experience God's grace for ourselves, to live under God's grace together and live graciously and be gracious to each other in our personal relationships. I was talking to a friend here in New York who's an older guy, he's in his 70s, and uh, he, he was telling me that he, he doesn't remember an election before or since, even this last one, uh, since the election in 2008 when Obama won the election. And he remembers... The, the jubilation, the, the cheer. He, he was screaming and his friends were shouting and cheering out of, for joy out of their apartment windows and all his neighbours along with him. There was jubilation in the city on a scale he doesn't remember. Uh, why? Because for a moment, 
everyone felt that we finally had the right leader who would set this nation to rights, who would set the world to rights. There would be peace and prosperity and life together was about going to get a whole lot better because people believed that our future, our collective future was in the hands of the right person. Now, let, let me just be clear. I'm not in any way revealing my political leanings by describing that, that scene for you. Uh, I'm way too cynical to get excited, that excited about anyone who, who, of our candidates and, and people who run. Um, and, and maybe you feel the same way too. Maybe you're, you, you feel that kind of cynicism. And if that's you, well, you're in good company because that's really one of Matthew's, one of the points that Matthew's making here. We know that the Roman phrase, good news or gospel, um, was, well, it is a Roman phrase. The phrase good news or gospel is a Roman phrase that they use all the time. Uh, and they use it in a very particular way. They use it to announce the ascension of a new emperor, a new king. Good news, Caesar is Lord, but we don't have Lord, so what does that even mean? Good news, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Caesar. But Matthew's too cynical. And he says, no, no, that's not good news. Pull back the curtain of Roman propaganda on that and see what's behind it. You're a poor parody of the real thing. That's not good news. But I'll give you some good news. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Perhaps we've been facing our own crisis about our own future. Perhaps about our careers, our jobs, which seem to be dead-ending. Perhaps about a relationship that has been strained under the last two years because you've been forced to be together more than ever under stressful circumstances. Or perhaps friendships that have grown distant, again because of the last two years, which have made it perhaps difficult or near impossible to be with each other in person. We have faced what at times has felt like our own collective existential crisis in the form of a virus and nothing now seems as certain as it once was. And some people have had to do all of this in the context of dysfunctional communities where you don't know where you might put a foot wrong, where despite all the talk of grace people feel more guilty, more insecure, where, where some have learned to hide themselves and others are still trying desperately to get it right. Taking all of this into consideration, I want to ask, how can we live graciously in these times, experiencing God's grace and being gracious to each other? Let me put it another way. How can we be setting our ambitions high? Okay, let's set our ambitions high. How can we be perhaps the most gracious people? How can we be the most gracious people in the lives of those around us, in each other's lives? and in the lives of our friends. When Eric and I were talking about what we should title this series, Eric, just for fun, typed the, the keyword Sermon on the Mount into an online title generator. Uh, and uh, so many of the titles uh, came out like this. Um, Sermon on the Mount, 10 Simple Steps, 27 Ways to Sermon on the Mount, Learn to Sermon on the Mount in 30 days. Turn zero dollars into a million with Sermon on the Mount. 
But we don't need five easy steps, do we? Or ten ways to make things better. Self-help, another moral code, or even a message about how I personally can have a better afterlife. Because none of this is good news enough. What we need is an encounter with God. And in the Sermon on the Mount, that's exactly what we get. We encounter here the Word of God. We're meant to hear the voice of God, to glimpse the heart of God. We look at Jesus and we see God, and we look to God, and God presents himself in Jesus. Jesus is God's unexpected future for humanity. On this mountain, his sermon is itself an act of God's gracious intervention, where we realize that our future, our future is in the hands of the God who says do not hate. Your future is in the hands of the God who says do not judge. My future is in the hands of the God who says love your enemy. Our future is in the hands of the God who says pray for those who willfully use you. Their future is in the hands of the God who says do good to those who hate you. Your future is in the hands of the God who says bless those who curse you. My future is in the hands of the God who says turn the other cheek. Our future... Our collective future is in the hands of the God who says give. Give generously to those who ask from the bottom of your heart.